Good morning, Sailorville. Well, if you're there in Genesis chapter 3, we will continue in our study of In the Beginning. My uh, team, our uh, pastoral staff, was at the the Gospel Coalition earlier this week. And uh, while we were there, one of the speakers uh, said that uh, there really ought to be an audiology uh, conference That is a conference whereby God's people can learn how to listen to God. And when he said that, I thought of Jesus' own words when he said, He who is of God hears God's words. Have you ever read that? We have hearing problems, don't we? Spiritually speaking. And uh, I I was reminded of this when we hopped on a plane because uh, I had to make my way here for... to be prepared for uh, the, the Pilcher, Jenny Pilcher funeral, and uh, so I had to leave the conference early, and I left with Abe Miller, our administrative pastor. We came together, we were on a plane, and, uh, and I mean, so many things were going through my mind, a retreat my wife and I had done, and some couples we were working with, the conference we were just at, the, the ministry to the Pilcher family, and, the, and, the, and by the way, they're here, they're over here in the corner over here. Fred, you're right where you often are. Informally with your sweetheart, I know that your children are here as well. And so to you, Fred and uh, Amber and Isaac and Caleb, Sailorville offers our deepest, deepest sympathies to you. Amen? And we love you, and may God bless you and continue to comfort you in these days. We're so thankful that you can be with us here this morning. And it was just really one of those things really on my mind, what to say during that funeral. And then, of course, this message was also, so I had a lot of things firing simultaneously on my mind. And uh, and so in the middle of all of that, I was, a thought, I mean, this thought came to my mind, it was like gold came to my mind. So, I mean, I just just blurted out this thought to Abe, because I thought he would appreciate it, and he wasn't even listening to me. He had one of these, you know, high-end headphones on. I think there was a plan behind that, but at any rate. <laughs> Some of you have hearing problems. You've heard the words of God only superficially. And we, when we left off in the garden in our story here, Adam and Eve had sinned. They've been exposed. They're naked. Uh, they, they cover themselves. And, and then when they heard God... Coming in the garden, they hid. And we have been closing our ears, covering up our shame, and hiding our faces ever since, haven't we? And yet all of us, like Adam and Eve, all of us will one day stand before the living God. That's what Romans 14, verses 10 through 12 says. We will all stand before God. And like Adam and Eve, we will all give an account before God. So let's listen today and learn from the the judgment meted out by God to Adam and Eve, along with the serpent and creation. It looks like hell, but God gives them and us hope in the midst of a horrible turn of circumstances here. And what I want you to note from this passage, first of all, is you who exalt yourself will be humbled. That is pretty clear, especially as God begins to judge the serpent. He says in verse 14 of the serpent, because you have done this. Done what? Well, he deceived. Remember, he deceived Eve. 
And here God speaks to the serpent, but he's actually addressing Satan, who used the serpent to trip up Eve. I was thinking about Jesus when he was talking, dialoguing with his disciples, remember, before he died. And he said, you know, the Son of Man is going to go. He's going to be betrayed. He's going to be crucified. And Peter grabs Jesus, so to speak, and says, not you, Lord. That's not going to happen to you. To which Jesus responds to Peter. He doesn't say, get thee behind me, Peter, right? Even though Peter surely thought Jesus was addressing him. But many of you know what he said was, get thee behind me, what? Satan. Identifying the very source behind the comment that Peter had made. As Peter was insisting that Jesus not go to the cross. And that's actually very insightful, because Tim Keller, in his last message in this conference, pointed out that whenever we avoid the cross... And God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? And whenever we avoid the cross, we put ourselves in the grip of Satan. That's why the cross is so central to the believer's life. And furthermore, there's no way to remain proud in front of the cross. There's no way. And some of you are just plain proud. And so you're not looking at the cross. It's the cross That will humble you, and you who exalt yourself will be humbled. And so with that, the condemnation comes, the curse comes down. He says, above all, twice, you're going to be cursed above all the livestock, above all the animals, above all the creatures in the world. The serpent is cursed. And while all of the animals on earth suffered from the curse, the snake suffers above all. And it, by the way, is a perpetual reminder to us when you see a snake That God intended for you to be perpetually reminded that that those who exalt themselves will be what? Humbled. Pride goes before the, interestingly, the fall. The snake itself is a symbol of humiliation. Most of us are are repulsed by Snakes, unless you're little boys who just kind of, for some reason, have fetishes with snakes. But other than that, most people don't like them. I remember 20 years ago when we first got here, and we, were, we, we bought some property over here by the church. It was all full of junk. There was even a gas tank in there. And we had about 50 guys attacked. We were ripping down all these trees. And Rob Albright, 20 years younger, just full of virility and power and strength, was ripping around with his bobcat, tearing everything up in sight, the manly man in the bunch, until I found a garter snake. He turned into a sniveling little scaredy cat right on the spot. Then he tried to run me over afterwards. My tenure was pretty short-lived almost. Why? Because he hates snakes like most of us do. We know that Satan has already fallen before this moment. And we know from Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah chapter 14 that he, sin of pride was found in him when he wanted to exalt himself and be like the most high God. And he is a perpetual reminder to us that those of us who exalt ourselves will be humbled. He goes down to his belly, down in the dust you'll eat all the days of your life. The clear implication here is that he was an upright creature. Very beautiful, probably very stunning to behold. Not anymore. 
And even in the kingdom to come, Isaiah tells us that even when everything else is hunky-dory, you know, uh, there's no more carnivorous animals eating one another up or human beings. Little boy can stick his hand into a a viper pit and not get get bit. Uh, You know, lions or wolves and lambs lie down, lions and all the rest. Right there in Isaiah 65, we're told that the snake will still crawl on his belly. So for all eternity... There will be a perpetual reminder with Jesus having the marks in his hands of his death for us and the snake crawling on the ground to remind us how this whole thing went to hell in a handbasket, right? And so, Jesus said in Luke 18, he who exalts himself will be humbled. That's all you got to know. God resists the proud, gives grace, what? To the humble. Here's the second thing I want you to see from this passage. You who are outside of Christ stand condemned, separated, and dead. If you're outside of Jesus, you, are, you stand condemned, separated, and you're dead in your trespasses and sins. Christians love Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? It's a wonderful truth. But the fact is, if you are outside of Christ, there is now condemnation to you. You reside in condemnation. And Jesus said so much. Jesus said in John chapter 3, he who believes in me is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, literally presently condemned, because you've not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So if you are outside of Jesus right now, of which several of you are, You stand under the condemnation of God. That's serious business. And this passage of Scripture sort of fleshes that out by just levying all of these things to the woman, to the man, to the serpent, to the ground. It's all cursed, isn't it? Anybody here see the shack? Like three of you willing to admit it. I did. I saw it. I wanted to go there because I wanted to give an answer to the people that, uh, and I got, and by the way, the very, I'd, I'd, I'd listened to the audio book several years earlier, not because I liked it or anything, just because I, in fact, right after we saw the movie, I ran into somebody at the fitness club who just had all kinds of questions. Here is a woman going to a church that does it, that claims to preach the gospel, but it's really kind of Christianity light and all of this. She had questions, she had a ton of questions for me. And I looked at her and I said, well, when I think of the movie, The Shack, it just reminds me of a lot of churches that aren't very strong. They, it's not what they say that bothers me, it's what they don't say that bothers me. Now, mind you, there was some Eastern mysticism sewed into this thing and whatnot, but by and large, The Shack just made God out to be this chummy God who just sort of turns a blind eye to sin. And I thought of that as I was reading in my time with God just the other day in this passage in Exodus where it says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. And aren't you glad? Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Thank you, God. I need your steadfastness. I need your faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And yet, but who will by no means clear the guilty? So there you go. And Genesis chapter 3, and this section we just read, is a strong declaration 
that God doesn't turn a blind eye. And the results are a plethora of things. We should look at them. There's enmity, verse 15. I will, enmity, enmity between you, that's the serpent, and the woman. And so enmity, the word enmity means hatred. It means personal hostility. Uh, and in fact, Eugene Peterson's uh, Bible uh, puts it like this. I'm declaring war between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. The battle roars on, doesn't it? We just heard this this morning. The enemies are out there. We, uh, bombings in churches in Egypt. Followers of Jesus are being killed. We're into, a fight. We're into the fight of our lives in our own culture. The question is, whose side are you on? You're, I mean, that's the question right here. Whose side are you on? And I hear people say, well, you know, it's so unfair in our culture. I mean, it seems like Christians are always being, you know, they're always the ones, they're the whipping boy. They're always being singled out. Nobody else is like Christians. I got news for you. It's always been that way. It's been that way since the curse. It's been that way since the fall. It'll always be that way until our great conqueror, King Jesus, comes back and changes it all. So mark it down, there'll be enmity and pain. And this is particularly addressed to the women and to the mothers who will give birth to their children in pain. And can I get an amen from you moms? And I take it that before there was any sin, there wasn't, that is, there wouldn't have been any pain in childbearing. I do like the fact that Jesus sort of redeemed all this. In John chapter 16, verse 21, he was illustrating to his disciples who were just beside themselves because he just said he was going to die, he was going to go away, and they couldn't come with him, if you'll recall, and they're just beside themselves. And Jesus used the illustration of the pain that a woman goes through when she gives birth to a child to illustrate the joy that they would have on the other side. He said a woman, when she's, in, when she's you know, giving birth to a child, has pain, has sorrow, because the time has come. But, but when the child is born, she remembers her sorrow no more for the joy that a child's coming into this world. So Jesus sort of redeems your pain, doesn't he? By using it as an illustration for his death and his resurrection and the joy that we have for what we're going to be celebrating next week with Easter. And I know you, some of your women say, well, this isn't fair. What about the men? Hold on. There's, there, theirs is coming here. And here it is. There, there's going to be, the other thing is there's marital upheaval and confusion and abuse. If you look there in, in verse, at the end of verse 16, in, he says, your desire, he's speaking to Eve, shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. The key word here is the word desire. The word, the, technically, the word just means longing. It just means longing. It means to reach out after something. And it might lead some to conclude, is he talking about, is this, is this, does this have a sexual connotation? But, you know, women know better than that, but I won't go there. It's actually, the scripture knows better as well. Because if you go to the very next chapter, this word desire is used again. When God is talking to Cain, who's getting ready to kill his brother, hasn't done it yet, but he's offered a bad sacrifice that God didn't accept. And God says this, if you do well, won't you be accepted? If you do not 
do well. Sin is crouching at your door. We'll pick up this on this when we get to it. But he, he pictured, that's the first reference of sin in the Bible. That's powerful. Picturing sin as an animal that just wants to pounce on you and dominate your life, which is what sin does. But notice what the last line says. It's desire. What's desire? Sin's desire. It's desire is for you. You've got to rule over it. Therein you have the application as well as the interpretation of the word desire. It means to dominate. It means to control. It means to possess. So girls, if you're wondering where your little where your subtle, your little subtle or maybe not so subtle desire to rule, uh, to manipulate, indeed to lead your husband's come from, it don't wonder any longer. It's right here. And yet the last part of it says he'll rule over you. So it's sort of a double-edged sword. So you have the woman resisting the authority of the man as a result of the fall and the man abusing his authority as a husband. And don't we know that all too well? Some of you have experienced that and our hearts go out to you. And if you're a husband, that is you are married, don't you dare abuse your wife, especially if you call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. It's all part of the curse. It's all there. So, and apart from the grace of God in marriage, it can be a kind of hell on earth for many people, and indeed is. Frustration, that's another thing that comes as a result of the fall. Verse 17, and, and this is where Adam, he, he levies Adam. He says, look, because what you did, because you chose, you purposely violated. Remember, Adam wasn't deceived. Eve was deceived. Let's say that again. Adam was not deceived. Eve was deceived. This is why sin and the transference thereof comes through Adam, whereby one man's sin entered into the world and death through sin. So death passed upon all men for all sinned in Adam, Romans 5.12, right? 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 Okay, thank you. Just making sure you're with me. So herein lies the problem. We have a sin issue going on, and there's frustration. If the woman's main struggle is in the home as a wife and mother. The man's main struggle is in the workplace. Work itself, toiling, trying to provide. And, and here Adam is told that the very elements themselves are going to resist him. It, it, it kind of reminds me of that antacid commercial where you know, people are trying to eat and the, you know, the spaghetti and everything else is slapping them in the face. Uh, that's the idea. The land is, going to, is, is coming up against you. I mean, you're, he's not saying that work is a curse. Work isn't a curse because back in chapter 2, verse 15, God put Adam before the fall, before there was ever sin, in the garden to work the land. Remember that? So work isn't a curse. And all of you who work know that there's great dignity in work. And if you're a man, it doesn't matter if you have a high-paying job or a low-paying job. You know the dignity of work. I had a good friend who inherited uh, millions of dollars several years ago and didn't have to work, at least not for several years, but he was utterly and completely frustrated, even though he was wealthy, because he was a working kind of guy and he had a work ethic and God put that in him just like he did in you. Work is not the curse. The ground is cursed. And he says it's all because you listen to your wife. And I know, I know all kinds of jokes have been said about this, but I didn't bring any, so you can thank me for that. The word listened here is, uh, is an idiom, a Hebrew idiom that means to obey. And this probably gives us a little hint into what was taking place at the point of the fall. Apparently, Adam had abdicated his headship to Eve, and this is why this comes down on him so hard. 
Adam wasn't deceived, right? Eve was. And then death. Death. Look here again. He says at the end of verse 17, cursed is the ground. It's going to be painful. 18 thorns and thistles. You're, you're going to, everything's going to be by the sweat of your brow. And then at the end of verse 19, for out of it, that is the ground, you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall what? You're going to return. Now, as many of you know, I mean, I was raised in a Roman Catholic home. I have no regrets of my upbringing. I had wonderful parents, great brothers and sisters, lots of fun. And I was religious. In fact, I've often said to become a Christian, if you're a Roman Catholic, you don't have to believe more, you have to believe less. Because it's a, it's, a, it's a religion that's sort of convoluted. It has the essence. It's got, it believes that Christ was God, that he died, that he rose again, that he ascended into heaven. The Apostles' Creed is accurate. But then it convolutes it with all these sacraments and good works and things you got to do to get right with God. That's a convoluted faith. And why do I say that at this juncture? Because there is one thing. If, I, if you could say, is there anything about Catholicism you'd like to bring into the camp here? Yes, there is. I've always liked Ash Wednesday. Not because it's in the Bible necessarily or the 40 days that lead up to uh, you know, Easter, but the illusion is right here in Ash Wednesday. What happens at Ash Wednesday is you come up and the priest says this, remember as he puts the sign of the, of the cross with ashes on your forehead, he says, remember, O man, that thou art dust, and to dust you shall return. That's pretty sobering, isn't it? And I think necessary. I think it's important that all of us remember that we're dust, and to dust we shall return. That's why it's good to go to a funeral from time to time. It's there, and we, we, we remind people every time we have a funeral, as we did just last week, of Solomon's words when he said that it's better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. You're looking at the end of all men when you're looking at the casket, the body lying in state. And the living will take it to heart. That's what the writer of Ecclesiastes says. So in this regard, it's, it's good to remind ourselves that you were dust, and to dust you will what? You'll return. So death, and then separation. The last part of this is where God banishes Adam and Eve from the garden because they're sinful now. They can't partake of the tree of life if they do, they will live perpetually and their children and children's children and children's children's children in perpetual sinfulness and no hope. So for, by, by banishing them from the Garden of Eden, this was an act of grace on God's part. Listen to what one writer said. The garden would have become hell on earth, populated with the undying dead, forever living, forever dead. I remember I worked in a small factory many years ago, and, you know, I probably deserved to get fired like 15 times. I was such a, you know, I was so scandalous when I was there. But anyway, but there was a guy I worked with. He was the nicest guy in the world, hard-working guy, clean-cut guy, religious guy, didn't swear. His name was Dale. I, everybody liked Dale. He was kind of an odd duck, but we liked him. And... Uh, and we just couldn't imagine Dale ever doing anything wrong because we were the ones always causing trouble. But one day, 
we found out that Dale had been stealing nuts and bolts on a regular basis from the factory. And there was all this commotion, and we saw what, and then we saw all of these, uh, uh, these guards taking him out. We were all pressed up against the window watching Dale, Dale, the nice guy Dale, being walked out to his car. They literally escorted him to his car, into his car, and, and escorted him out of the parking lot, never to come back. Banished. It's one thing to be banished from a business. It's another thing to be banished from God forever. And that's what happens. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you are sinfully separated from God. That's what sin does. It separates you from God forever. God loves you. He's provided every opportunity for you to know him. But you are separated from him. Your sin has separated between, before you and your God, Isaiah 59 says. His hand isn't so short he can't save you, but your sins have separated. He doesn't even listen to you until you repent of that sin. Remember Jesus said there will be people coming to him, and this is the most awful passage of scripture in all of the Bible, Matthew 7. They'll come to him, they'll stand before him someday at the judgment day, and they'll say, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not done you know, cast out demons in your name? Have we not done many wonders in your name? Notice they're doing all these things in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, I will say unto them, which means he's going to say this to some of you. I never knew you. Depart from me. Be banished, you worker of lawlessness. That's the scariest verse in all the Bible. Why? It's scary because the entrance into hell is through the portals of heaven. These are people who think they're going to heaven. Some of you are there now. Your religion isn't going to save you. This church isn't going to save you. Only Jesus can. And that leads us to the last thing I want to share with you from this passage. And that's the point that I see is the hater of your sin is still the lover of your soul. And this passage really brings it out. The hater of your sin is the lover of your soul. Notice in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head. You shall bruise his heel. Theologians call this the protoevangelium. Just kind of a cool word to say. It basically means early or first addition to the gospel. Sort of the gospel in seed form, so to speak. In the midst of this war, the followers of Satan are are at odds with the followers of God. Satan's followers here are clear enough. He says, your seed. Now, look at verse, your seed. That's the seed of the serpent. That's clear enough. But notice Eve's seed. Notice Eve's followers are called her seed. Did you see that? That's very strange if you look at it. That's very strange. Let's put the verse up there so you can see it again. Her seed. I don't get that. Women don't have seed. Men have seed. Women have eggs. Men have seed. In order for a woman to have seed, something outside of her has to put it in there, has to put it in her. This is the earliest allusion to the gospel. This is the earliest allusion to the virgin conception of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel in seed form. He shall bruise your head. The word bruise means to crush. And when you crush a head, you kill it, right? You kill the enemy. And the 
when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he secured our salvation by destroying the works of Satan. In fact, look at Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 14 where it says, Since therefore the children shall share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, watch this, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. That's what Jesus did. He crushed the head of the serpent. Now, I told you that uh, I gave you some redeeming element of of my upbringing, the church of my upbringing, but I got to be honest with you. If you were to go to um, a Catholic cathedral or mass or something, or even visit some people's homes, uh, you'll see lots of statues, idols of Mary. You've seen some of those, right? Okay. And they say, well, they're not idols. And my question is, then why are we bowing down to them? And, uh, and if, you, if you see these, if, if, you, if you look closely, most people don't realize this. If you look really closely, you'll see that these statues, almost all of them have her stepping on the serpent. Mary. Catholic theology interprets this as Mary crushing the serpent's head. And that, my friends, is blasphemy. Mary didn't destroy. The, we just saw the scripture tells us it's Jesus that destroyed the devil. Amen? Jesus did that. Although he would suffer in so doing. His, his heel is bruised. You don't die for bruising your heel, right? That's a reference to the cross. The hater of your sin is still the lover of your soul. Not only did he make a future promise early on, he made a present provision for Adam and Eve and, 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 and further showing the extent in which he was willing to go. In verse 21, if you look at verse 21, it says God made skins, took skin, clothed them with skins. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Remember, Adam and Eve have clothed themselves when they found out they were naked. They took the foliage and they, they clothed themselves. But in verse 21, the Bible says God made skins for them, which means the very first time, for the very first time in the history of the world, there was a death. And that death was a sacrifice. And that sacrifice was on behalf of Adam and Eve. The innocent died for the guilty. And that's the way it's always been. That's what Peter meant when Peter said, Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God. And that's why God does what he does. Being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. But here you have in the Garden of Eden, an animal dies right in front of Adam and Eve, thus showing that someone innocent must die for the guilty. And isn't that what Jesus did for us? Jesus' death was that which would bring about the crushing defeat of Satan. And yet if it's true, then how do we explain the continued presence of evil in this world? Churches blowing up in Egypt, ISIS driving through with trucks and killing people in other cities around the world. Maybe, I mean, it's, we, it, terrorism is struck here too. It's a, little like, it's a little like ISIS though. Satan is like ISIS in this regard. Defeated, but still taking pot shots. Still holding out, still controlling certain areas, still keeping the good guys on their toes, beaten, but still hanging around. Now listen carefully to what I'm going to say as I wrap this up. If you're a true follower of Jesus, you are part of the Lord's army. Advancing on our defeated enemy 
with every step of victory, we possess new ground. Are you ready for this? We, in so doing, we join Jesus in crushing Satan under our feet. Yes, our feet. God says that if you know Jesus, you become so inextricably tied into him that his victory is your victory. And in due course, as we continue to resist Satan's deceptions, watch this, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. This is amazing. We get to participate in the victory of Calvary. And you want to hear something even more fascinating? It's the context of that verse you're looking at. As Paul finishes his argument for salvation in the book of Romans, he says these words, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all. That's why I rejoice over you. But watch this. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. What is Paul saying to them? He's saying, don't be like Eve. And if you won't, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. How cool is that? How cool is that? And if you want to participate in this salvation, then you need to recognize that you are dust, and to dust you will return. And there is an eternity out there for those of you who have never placed your faith in Jesus, and it's not heaven. It's interesting that back to Catholic theology, I'm not, you know, I know it sounds like I'm picking on there, but this is cool. When the priest makes that sign of the cross with those palm ashes and says, remember that you, man, that you are dust, and to dust you will return. Actually, did you know that the priest has an option? He doesn't have to say that. Because ashes are a symbol of repentance. He can either say, remember, man, that thou art dust, and to dust you will return. Or he can say, repent and believe the gospel. That's what you must do if you want to get out of Eden and into heaven. God, thank you for our time together. Thank you for this passage of Scripture. Thank you for Jesus Christ, our true victor who who crushed the head of the serpent. But God, there are people in this room that are proud, and we've learned today that you put down pride. You did it with Satan, you'll do it with us. And we've learned today, Lord, that if we are outside of Jesus, we're separated from you. We're headed for death and separation forever. But we've also learned that you, dear God, the hater of our sin, are still the lover of our souls. And you have provided a way through the death of your son, his death on our behalf. What a joy. As we conclude our time in prayer, if you are 
if it's your heart would say, God, I, I'm, that's me. I'm separated from you. I need to repent of my sin and believe the gospel. Then do so today and be born into the kingdom of God. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand.